welcome to Do I Need My Racket, the first episode of our podcast from In Her Name Foundation. My name is Cindy Swain. I am your host and CEO and president of In Her Name Foundation. And I'm Jenna Swain, proud daughter of Cindy and the director of marketing for the foundation. Really happy to have you here along my side today, Jenna. Okay, Mom, In Her Name Foundation. First of all, what does the title mean? How did it come to be? It, obviously, it's a nonprofit. It has a lot to do with your story, and as the founder and the CEO, um, tell us why. We want to hear all about it. Well, we founded it in 2020, and its mission is to empower, inspire, and create the next generation of young female athletes mm-hmm. by providing them resources to participate through equipment, uniforms, mentorships, mm-hmm. scholarships, and really change the narrative around girls' sports in a positive way so they can have success at every level. Mm-hmm. And obviously your story is partly to do with it, but where did you see the need for the foundation? I guess when did you notice and really... Well, for many years to- I've been doing public address announcing for varsity sports at Lansing Catholic High School, and I noticed that always the girls' teams never seem to have quite the... Uh, elaborate equipment as a lot of the boys teams or didn't have announcers just the resources just didn't seem there to be supporting them yeah and that raised a question as to why and then I started to think about my experience playing sports and what a positive impact that has had on my life and hope to inspire others to share their story that could perhaps inspire other young people the foundation is in memory of my lady aunt, your sister. Tell us a little bit about Carla. Yeah, Carla was an avid sports fan. She played tennis, uh, was a runner, a cyclist, and really was a supporter of gender equity in all things, especially sports. And she was also one to use her voice to stand up for what was right and to support those that were left behind. And this also just goes right nicely with the foundation and her memory to be able to bring that legacy into something more meaningful and positive for other young women to have a role model. Tell us what happened. Obviously, your sister died at a very young age. Um, I never got to meet my aunt, so she's no longer here. What happened? Well, it happened a long time ago, way before your days. I was 14. And my older sister, Carla, 20. That was, uh, you were going into your freshman year? Yeah, that was, I, that was the summer before my freshman year of high school. Okay. And my sister was home from her junior year from the University of Kansas. She was a pharmacy student, had just completed her first year in pharmacy school. Mm-hmm. And how old was she? She was 20. 20. Um, it, she was working for Purdy's Pharmacy in downtown Hayes, Kansas, as a pharmacy technician. Huge town. Yeah, it's a kind of a sleepy small town in western Kansas. I used to joke, if you draw a line from Kansas City to Denver, put a dot in the middle, that's Hayes in the middle of nowhere. So we had been on that day, on June, June 30th, 1976, uh, eating lunch in the kitchen at the table. And when we finished, we always sat out on the front porch to talk for a little bit. Just and you and her? Just, two, just the two of us. And we were discussing plans for later in the day. She was going to return to work uh, to Purdy's Pharmacy, and I was going to hang out with friends. And then later that day, we were going to meet up at my softball game at around 7 p.m. in the evening. So, Carla, we finished our discussion, and she walked across the front yard, down the sidewalk to the alley, 
and as she always did, turned and waved, and I waved goodbye. She had on a maroon top, mm-hmm. blue jeans, and a pair of white, white tennis shoes. And that was the last time I ever saw her. And I've played that memory over in my mind countless times, just absolutely countless yeah, times. I can imagine. So anyway, she went on to work. I went to softball, and I noticed something. It just seemed kind of strange because she wasn't there. She didn't come to softball, and she always came to all my games. And for her to not be there just seemed unusual because she just never did that. So, But I figured, well, maybe she got busy and went and visited friends or time got away from her. So softball finished. I went home. And it was about 9 p.m. by that time. The sun was starting to set, and she still wasn't home. And, you know, hours kind of crept on. It got around 10 10 o'clock that evening, and it was dark. And my parents started to kind of get mildly worried, calling around a few friends to see if they'd seen her. You know, maybe she stopped off, and they're going to give her a ride home. We got to be 10 o'clock. It was dark. My parents started calling people. No one had seen or heard from her. And, you know, as the hours crept on, everybody started getting a little bit more edgy, a little more nervous. Mm -hmm. Midnight came, and as the cars would drive in and out of the driveway, I'd think, ah, this one, this one's going to be it, right? You know, she's going to be home, man. She's going to get it because she's really late and never told anybody where she was, and my mom and dad are going to be really upset with her. But no, no one had seen her. So then it got to be about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and then they were worried because no one had seen her or heard from her at all. And my dad decided to go out and search or retrace her steps because what she had done, instead of coming to softball, she'd gone on a bike ride that early evening. And about a half a mile from her house in the ditch, she found her bike, but no other signs of anything that had happened to her, nothing. So he brought the bike home, and you know, I remember him bringing it home and putting it in the carport, and it just seemed really strange to have that bike there and not her. Yeah. So as the time went on that early morning, some friends came in from out of town, and my parents were just, at this point, panicking. And we started to retrace steps, places we'd gone in the country to run the dogs or watch sunsets, walk up and down roads. And, you know, I, I remember standing in the moonlight and walking down this country road, calling her name, thinking at any moment she's going to say, oh, I know, I'm here, I'm here, I'm over here. But we, we, there was no trace of her whatsoever. So the you know that was June fir- July first, and at that time that's so scary. And what's going through your head? Are you thinking worst case scenario, or you just thought she was out and had to be somewhere? And at that at that point, I think I thought she was just out and had yeah. to be somewhere. Were your Were your parents thinking that, or were they thinking worst case scenario? Mixed, I think. Mixed. I mean, they, that's what everybody was hoping, right. and and so that's why we just everybody started searching, asking, retracing steps. Oh, yeah, and it, and it got to be where uh, at that point in time, fortunately, this has changed. But you couldn't report a missing person until they'd been missing for at least twenty four hours before yeah. authorities got involved. So that would have been July first at eight p.m before that we could even get the authorities involved yeah and by that time you know a lot of times it's too late so the the days kind of started stretching into weeks the weeks started stretching into months and it ended up being 84 days total just shy of three months so from what month to what month from june 30th 
to September 22nd. We had wow. no idea that's how long it went. Wow. And, and there were a lot of things that went on. I mean, there was still searches that went on and groups of people that would walk through fields that would check, you know, all the way to Colorado at truck stops. Um, it, my, my parents offered a $5,000 reward for any information leading to her disappearance. So, which in today's dollars, that would be around $25,000. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. And, and then, I think out of absolute desperation, my dad hired a psychic. Her name was Susie Cottrell. She had been on the Johnny Carson show and could read memory, you know, minds and do card tricks. Yeah. And so she came one afternoon, and I'm not sure how I got nominated for this job, but they thought maybe I should spend time with her because I knew my sister the best and I knew all those favorite places she wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. So we sat down on the floor, and I think to gain my confidence, she was doing card tricks, and I was pulling cards out of the deck and, and sitting there wondering, why am I doing this? This just seems like such a waste of time yeah, to play cards sure. when everybody's panicking. Yeah. So then we spent the afternoon driving around, and she just asked me a bunch of questions. We went some of the favorite places that we like to go. Only thing she came up with at the end of the day was that she was, Carla was somewhere southwest of Hayes. But at this, you know, thinking then, I thought, well, that's kind of useless information. Right. But almost now it's like, I kind of wonder if she did know. Because she was right on the location. But maybe she knew the other wow. part, too. You so, think that she knew the other part and just didn't want to say anything That's to what you I, guys? yeah, oh, I think God. so. Yeah. Yeah, you can look her up. She actually was on the Johnny Carson show. What's her name again? Susie Cottrell. Susie Cottrell. Yeah. I will. I'm going to have to do that. Yeah. So, you know, it got to be August. Freshman year of high school was going to start, and there were tennis tryouts. So I thought, well, one way to, to do something for her would be to pick up the racket and start swinging it and play tennis. She and I had played a lot before. Mm-hmm. And we love to play tennis together. And I thought maybe in some magical way, this might be bring her back or, you know, will her back or make me closer to her if I played tennis. Yeah. So I go to the first day of practice and it's a challenge ladder where you determine the position you're going to play on the team. And the first round I picked, unfortunately, the number one singles player on the varsity. <laughs> Naturally, of course. As a freshman. Yeah. I got waxed. How I mean, <laughs> not well. <laughs> it didn't go well because I hadn't played all summer, you know, since early June yeah. and ended up 18 out of 24 kids. <laughs> I wasn't even on the on the JV. There, back then, you back had... Back when they had freshman t- girls tennis yeah, teams. They had... Um, Six on the varsity, six on the JV or B team, and then and the rest of us would just follow in on the C team. So that's I've never heard of a C team. I was on the C team. Yes, I was. <laughs> but determined to do better than that because I knew I could. I started slowly working my way up the the, the ladder, and then September twenty second happened mm-hmm. when we got word. I was standing in the front yard visiting with a neighbor, Simon Roth, the district attorney, drove up in his silver Mercedes, parked at the curb, walked across the front lawn, didn't say a word, had his head down looking at the grass the whole time, mm-hmm. walks into the front door and sits down on the couch next to my mom and explained what happened. Carla had lost her life to the same person who had taken 
five lives over a two-year period. And they did find her 30 miles southwest of Hayes by Cedar Bluff Reservoir. In so a remote in the exact area. Location that the, the psychic had sort she of said she was there. southwest of Hayes, and I always wondered if she knew or had a sense that she was no longer living. And at that time, you know, looking back, if you, you, you know that it's not a good outcome if you haven't heard from them right. in that length of time. Yeah. yeah. Because it, we, we hired her probably sometime in July. I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you the date, but it was quite a while after she'd been mm-hmm. missing. So what did the, um, the DA say when he came in? Well, he, he related to my mom that um, they had found her in a remote area and that it had been long enough to where they had to get a pathologist and the dentist in to make a positive identification. Oh, so, yeah, it was crushing. It was crushing for my whole family. Oh, what was... Cause, because I always wonder what would happen in situations like this, you know, when you receive life's most devastating news and... How did you take it? How did your parents react? Well, you know, it's just crushing. I, I can't imagine being a parent myself. It, it, it just le- literally leveled both my mom and my dad. And for me, I was, it, it was also crushing. It wasn't the news that we wanted to hear, but because we'd been held in suspended am- animation all yeah. summer and yeah. not knowing, it was almost a relief because I thought to myself, Maybe now we can pick up the pieces like Carla would want us to do and move forward, even though it's not what we wanted. And so, you know, that's that's kind of where my mentality was at that wow. point. Um, yeah, it, it was You're tough. You're going to make me cry. I've got tears in my eyes. Oh. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough. And like I said, as a parent, I cannot imagine the crushing blow of using, losing a child. Losing a child and... and- for you, you were then almost an only child because your older brother was off at college. Yeah, my older brother, Craig, 18, was a freshman at the University of Kansas. So, yeah, it was just me. I was home with my mom. and So your um, parents, your parents through this whole situation, obviously went through an extremely rough patch and, and, and separated. So, so how did that factor into it? Yeah. At that time, my folks were separated and, um, did they separate, were they separated before or after she was missing or after she was missing? I think it was just the too much. Yeah. It was just too much for them to deal with. And, you know, there had been some difficulties prior to that. And so it was just my mom and I were at home. Yeah, it was tough. Like, again, if we go back to that September 22nd, um, I had practice that day. Tennis practice. Yeah. So, yeah. So, your parents are divorced. Your sister's dead. Your brother's gone. How are you feeling? What do you do? Where do you go from there? I was lost, honestly. And I I thought, you know, I got practice today. I really don't want to go because, number one, I have to play a challenge match. Don't want to do that. (laughs) After you had landed 18 on the list of 20. Yeah. Made the C team. Yeah. So, um, I, I was just, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I thought, I'm going, I'm going to go to practice. And, you know, I, I, cause I knew I can, could I tell my coach, I didn't want to practice. I didn't want to disappoint her. I didn't want to make my challenge match. So I, I thought I'm going. And you know what I asked myself that day? What? Do I need my racket? <laughs> so that's where this whole theme and title of the podcast kind of comes to do I need my racket do I need my racket because it wasn't about my racket 
The racket, yes, I did. I decided I needed it. I picked it up, but I knew I wasn't going to use it. But it gave me purpose. Yeah. And as I look back, it's like, yes, you do need your racket because sometimes you have to swing it and you swing and miss. And sometimes you swing it and you hit head on and that's life. Mm -hmm. So I picked up my racket and I rode my bike to practice. And I remember riding up to the court, setting my bike aside against the fence. My tennis coach, Donna Cooper, called me over to her. And I really thought I was going to crumble. My legs were just shaking because I, I, no I knew how you managed that. I thought, I don't know. I don't know what I'm even going to say. And I didn't have to say a word, actually. She yeah. put her arms around me and said, you're going to get through this. Do you have faith? And do you have faith in yourself? That in time will get you through this. And I can tell you 40 some years later, that is more true now than ever. More true now than ever. Because what Donna Cooper taught me was to believe in myself, that I could reach higher and do better. And yes, I could get through it with a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. So, oh, gosh, you're really just pulling them out of me today. The waterworks. <laughs> so because she taught me to believe in myself... The start, I moved all the way up to number four on the challenge ladder by the end of my freshman year and qualified for regionals. I didn't do well at regionals, but I made a lot of progress going from 18 Mm -hmm. to number four, and I was on the varsity, from C team to varsity. Mm -hmm. Starting my sophomore year, I took over at number one singles on the challenge ladder and retained that all the way through my senior year. Woohoo! My voice just cracked. (laughs) Woohoo! Then October 1979, the fall of my senior year in high school, I won the state singles championship and went on to earn a full ride scholarship at Division I school, Wichita State University, to play tennis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the championship was great and the scholarship was awesome. But the most important thing that happened in that whole time I was playing high school tennis was the fact that my coach taught me to believe in myself. Yeah. And, that, and if she and if she hadn't and if she hadn't, you know, taken you under her wing, Lord knows where you'd be, right? I don't think it would have been a good outcome. Right. It you know, tennis gave me purpose. My racket gave me a purpose. It was my life, it was my soul, it was my being, it gave me meaning. Truly. Truly. Therein lies the reason of why we're here. Why we're we here. We need more Donna Coopers out there. We, we need we need Especially now, we need people reaching out to young people to give them hope, to inspire them, mm-hmm. and um, so that they can uh, inspire others. And that's the purpose of this podcast is to, you know, further episodes. We're going to be talking to a lot of other uh, young people about female athletes their stories yeah, and sure. how s- that shape their lives mm-hmm. and change their lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's just step back to just talk a little bit about how we came up with the name of this. Not only did I say, you know, I asked myself on that day, do I need my racket? Okay, so you asked yourself, do I need my racket? And as the varsity tennis coach, um, varsity girls tennis coach, is that the first time you've heard that sentence? No, I I actually heard that a couple other times. So (laughs) this last spring season, um, in the middle of season, on my way to practice, I had my backpack. On on her way to tennis practice. Yes. To the the courts. Right. 
I, with my backpack on, my tennis gear with me, I was stopped by a freshman and that asked me, coach, do I need my racket? And I, and I thought to myself, what are you, nuts? <laughs> of course you need your racket. Uh, anyway, I, I just didn't take it real seriously until the second time it happened, which was after the season and it was the beginning of high school tennis camp when two more freshmen asked me the first day of tennis camp, do we need our rackets? Freshman, man. And I thought, well, of course you do. But I kept thinking there's something behind that question that I need to explore. Mm-hmm. And as I got thinking about my own story, when I was a freshman, I asked myself the same question. Right. So that's how we came up with the title. Well, we do need to to give a shout out to Tudor Big, Big Sound and Lighting. Big Sound and Lighting. They do it up. They'll do all your events. Yep. And Tudor Big composed and produced the original theme song for this podcast. Composer, producer, editor. And also helped produce the podcast. So thank you, Tudor. For more information about In Her Name Foundation, visit our website at inhernamefoundation.org. Join us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter or make a donation. We look forward to meeting all of you again and sharing our next episode of Inspiration. Until then, see you next time and be prepared to bring your racket.